0: From scripture this morning, we'll turn to John chapter 10. So in John chapter 10, you first have the parable of the good shepherd, and we're going to pass that by and go to verse 22 to the end of the chapter so John 10 and I'm going to begin at verse 22 John 10 and verse 22 at that time the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand I and the father are one the Jews picked up stones again to stone him Jesus answered them I showed you many good works from the father for which of them are you stoning me The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do then, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again, beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. And Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. So far the reading of God's word. Congregation in the past, uh, Sundays in the morning, we have considered uh, what is a church, We considered uh, uh, preaching last week. Before that, we had a a message on on what to do with a sermon. And I feel like this morning, we come uh, away from the plant, and now we come to the soil. And this morning, I would like to look at you is this. What is this book that we carry with us? this book that sits here on this pulpit, this book that we open every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. Again, I feel like preaching and the sermon is like the plant. But now we're going to descend into the soil, the source, the basis for everything that takes place here in this church. Here in this pulpit, especially where the word of God goes forth. What is the Bible? You'll remember that in the sermon on preaching, I insisted very much that no man has any authority who stands in this pulpit unless he comes with the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord, is the only authority we recognize in Reformed churches. And actually, I should broaden that to evangelical churches. That's really what the term evangelical has come to mean in American history. A, a, a churches that hold to a uh, the full authority of Scripture in their church. So Baptist churches and independent and congregational and Bible churches would be evangelical churches. They hold to the authority of God's Word. And in Reformed churches, we count ourselves amongst those who hold the Scripture in the highest place. Well, we defined preaching as the exposition and the application of the Word of God. And you see a a, a common theme here, don't you? It's all about the scripture. It's all all about the Bible. And that's really what I'd like to do this morning then is to to dig into the soil a bit and find out what is this foundation, the, the basis that lies for everything that we do here. And what's the best way to do that? Well, it may seem a bit odd, but again, we're going to learn about the Bible by opening the Bible. And that may seem a little circular to you, But what I would like to do this morning is to look specifically at what Jesus taught us. And actually, we're going to learn this morning not so much what Jesus taught us about the Bible, but we're going to look at how Jesus handled the Bible. How did he treat the Bible? What did he understand the Bible to be? So we're going to look at different uh, sections where Jesus is referencing the scriptures and I'm going to pay less attention to what Jesus is actually saying and I want to like step behind what Jesus is doing and how he understands the scripture because we want to treat the Bible the way Jesus did now I don't mean to make that point here I think we all agree with that we want to have the same attitude towards scripture that Jesus did is that right? we want to have the same attitude toward Jesus or towards scripture that Jesus did And so I want to look at these different instances. And in some places, we'll be looking at just almost like a little parenthetical comment that Jesus makes. But still, it's a clue for us as to how Jesus understood the Bible. And that, of course, is how we, as a church, want to understand the Bible. So let's move from the plant this morning to the soil. And and find what is the Word of God, and how are we to understand it. And the first... The first uh, place where we'll we'll find this then, the first uh, example where Jesus is handling the word of God is in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22. Now, I've entitled this first heading, God's word. Because here it is, congregation, that we can see that Jesus understands the Bible to be more than a human production. More than a human production. So in Matthew 22... And many of these are going to be debates that Jesus is having with the the Pharisees. But in Matthew 22, if you turn there and drop down to verse 41, again, this is a dispute that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And here's the question in verse 42 that Jesus asked What do you think about the Christ? And of course, Christ there is just another word for Messiah, right? It's the Greek word for the the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. This is the one that all the Jewish people had been taught from their youngest days to expect, that the Messiah would come. And they were all waiting earnestly for his coming. And Jesus now says, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? And they answered to him, a very scriptural answer here, the son of David, the Messiah will be the son of David. And Jesus comes back and he says to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and then here Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord, and notice there it's Yahweh, right? The Lord, all capital letters. I hope you can see that in your Bible if you're following with me. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies." Beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So what Jesus has, in a a nutshell here, he has shown from scripture that Jesus is the son of David, but he's more than the son of David. He's Lord. He's God himself. He is Yahweh. Now again, I don't want to focus so much on that. I want to zero in in verse forty-three, those that little prepositional phrase there. He said to them, "Then how does David, in the Spirit?" You see how Jesus is distinguishing now the writing of David in the Old Testament from all other writings, because David spoke uniquely. He spoke in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit was exercising a controlling influence on David's writing that made David's writing unique from all other writing that was in the world at the time. David spoke in the Spirit. Now, later we have an even clearer statement of that from the Apostle Peter, where Peter says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So again, what Jesus put in a little prepositional phrase there, in the Spirit, Peter expands for us, right? And he teaches us that Scripture is unique because the writers who wrote Scripture were carried along. They were moved by the Spirit of God to do their writing. So did Peter write? Yes. Did Paul write? Did David write? Yes. But children, you can even think about it this way, over their shoulder, as it were, stood the Spirit of God. Right? And he guarded that word. And no error crept into what they wrote. Now Peter still wrote like Peter. Paul still wrote like Paul. Right? And you can even read and you can kind of see their personalities reflected in what they wrote. But, over it all was the Spirit of God. And he protected what they wrote from all error. We also have a similar a statement of this in the, the very well, you're, this is well known to you, right? In two Timothy three sixteen, that all Scripture is God breathed. And the the word that is given us in theological circles, right, is the term inspiration, a really terrible term. Sorry, inspiration gives us the idea, right? that the Spirit of God sort of inspired them, right? The way we might talk about a, a beautiful piece of organ music or orchestra music, okay? As that was an inspiring piece. No, what the, what the Scripture is saying in 2 Timothy 3 is that the Scripture is outspire, outspired, if I can create a term here, right? Outspired, in other words, the Scripture is God's breath that comes out all of Scripture is inspired. Not that God breathed into it something that inspires us and, and makes us like it, right? Now, Scripture might be very inspiring to us. I, I get that. That's, that's a different thing, right? But now, when Jesus is saying that David spoke in the Spirit, and when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, it means that all of Scripture is the breath of God. It it's, comes from His mouth. Now, I know we use the term inspiration. That's fine. I'm not going to object to that. But just so you know, right, the term inspiration can be, can be misunderstood. And actually, many uh, more liberal scholars will will uh, equivocate on the term inspiration. And they'll, they'll use it with kind of a, uh, a double meaning. Well, what they mean by it is not what we mean by it. And so we have to be a little more careful. I, I really like to use the expression, God breathed. At any rate, then you also notice in, in this argument that Jesus is making here with the Pharisees that the argument that Jesus is making here depends upon one word Lord right because that's what Jesus is saying How, why did David say the Lord said to my Lord right and so the Lord God the Father is speaking to my Lord Jesus his son right and that's why Jesus is saying that the Messiah is not just the son of David he's the son of God Well, notice that the word that, the argument that Jesus is making depends just on that one word, Lord. And that's why, and again, in Reformed circles, we've always insisted that inspiration is verbal. It extends down to the very words of scripture. So, the scripture is God's word. The scripture is not a human production, it is God's breath. The writers who wrote were moved or carried along by the spirit of God. To make on then to my next point, which is infallible, Now really, congregation, we need to do nothing more than just reflect on the first one, right? Because if it is God's word, then of course it is infallible. God cannot lie. So there will be no error in Scripture. But again, I would like to take you to the Scripture and to show you that. And in John 10, which is what we read together, we saw Jesus, again, make just almost an offhand comment. It, It really doesn't even pertain to the argument that he's making. But it shows us how Jesus understood the Bible. And again, my premise this morning is that the way Jesus handled the Bible is how we want to handle the Bible. So I go to John 10, and I go to, uh, well, the the argument that Jesus is making here uh, begins in uh, verse 33. Again, Jesus is claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God. And in verse 33, the Jews answered him, For a good work we did not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. All right, Jesus had said, I and the Father are one. Well, immediately when the Jews heard that, they took up stones to stone him. That's blasphemy. No human can claim to be God. But Jesus comes back, and in verse 34, again, he quotes scripture. Verse 34, he says, and here he's, he's quoting Psalm 82. But Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, uh, and, and read that as in your scripture, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, in other words, those people heard the word of God, and David calls them gods, and then you have this little parenthetical comment, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, in a a nutshell, again, Jesus' argument here is that when David was speaking in the Psalms there, he was referring to the leadership of a nation as gods. You might say, gods, no, we don't talk that way. But in the Old Testament, you do find that. that Sometimes the word God, with a small g, is used to refer to leaders, human leaders of a nation. And so Jesus is saying, it can't be wrong for me to claim to be God, when even in the Old Testament, you know, it calls people gods. Jesus is saying, just me claiming to be God doesn't make me wrong. Me claiming to be God has to be tested, you have to weigh the evidence. And I've given you the evidence, right? Jesus said in verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Jesus is saying, if I'm not doing miracles, if I'm not raising the dead, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the lame, and doing it in a purely miraculous way, only a person who comes from God can do things like that. Those miracles are the credentials, you might say of a divine messenger. Now, if I don't do those miracles, then you don't need to believe me. But if I do those miracles, and those miracles are showing you that I am not that I am who I claim to be, I am doing the works of my Father, the miracles my Father has given me the power to do. Verse 38, But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Now, that's a, a striking saying that Jesus is saying, even if you don't believe my claims, at least look at the miracles I'm doing. And you will see that I'm not an ordinary human being. That my claim to be divine has real substance to it. Because remember what Nicodemus said, right? When Nicodemus went to visit Jesus, he said, Jesus, nobody can do the things you do unless he is from God. The same kind of idea here. So Jesus is saying, I claim to be God. You need to test that claim by the works that I do. Now, again, I'm not so interested in that argument this morning as I am in that little parenthetical comment in verse 35. And the scripture cannot be broken. Again, Jesus just kind of throws that out, right, as an aside, something that they all agreed on. But for us, that's critical, isn't it? Because here we gain a clue for how Jesus understood the word of God. And Jesus says, And the word of God cannot be broken. The word of God cannot be dissolved, it cannot be just dismissed. In other words, the Word of God is infallible. It cannot be broken. You cannot come to the Word of God and say, well, yes, I understand the Bible teaches this, but I believe this, that's wrong. You can't just dismiss Scripture like that. The Word of God cannot be broken. So the Word of God is infallible. Now, actually, congregation, just the word Scripture itself, right? Jesus says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. Just the word Scripture itself in the uh, original language, means a uniquely divinely inspired writing. So Scripture itself has that sort of right in the term itself of Scripture that it cannot be broken. But Jesus makes it explicit, doesn't he? He says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. And it's all of the Scripture. Notice Jesus says, the Scripture. In other words, that whole body of books that we call the canon of Scripture is divinely inspired, and is therefore authoritative in all of faith and life. And that's where we get the word plenary. Plenary is just a fancy word that means all. Just means all of it. We believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. Verbal, that the inspiration of God extends to the very words. Plenary, that it extends to all the Scripture. All the Scripture. We don't say, well, the book of Kings... It's a little less inspired than the book of Psalms. No, the scripture cannot be broken. All of the scripture is inspired by God. It's plenary uh, inspiration. Well then, I come to this last thing of Jesus in the uh, the desert where you remember that Satan comes to tempt him. And we'll find this in Matthew 4. And here we can be very brief because really what what is said here simply confirms what we've had before. The congregation, you'll notice that when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, Jesus responds each time. The same time. It is written. Look at Matthew 4 and verse 4. Right? Jesus says, if you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus answered, it is written written. Verse 6, Jesus says, if you are a son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Jesus responds, it is written. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written. Now congregation, think who's speaking here. This This isn't me as a preacher. This isn't one of us. This is Jesus, the son of God himself. This is Jesus who had done miracles to prove himself, to be a messenger from God the Father. And even Jesus, the Son of God, says and proves every one of his points, it is written. Again, this gives us a clue, doesn't it, for how Jesus understood the scripture. Even Jesus. He's teaching us how to act. This is how we should live. This is how our church should function. It is written. It is written. This is the end of all uh, controversy and issues and discussions. It is written. Where the scripture speaks, God speaks. And that is the end of the the matter then. Now, I know there's all sorts of issues about interpretation, certainly. But clearly in Matthew 4, we are taught here the authority. We had God's word in in the first one. We had infallible in the second, but now we have authority. It is written. God's word is the end of all controversy. Then in the last place, congregation, I'm sure as many of you will be thinking, you know, each of these examples is Jesus speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. What about the New Testament? Upon what basis do we accept the New Testament as scripture? Now, that is a more difficult, difficult question to answer. However, Uh, Dear friends, in the Bible, in the New Testament, already we find instances that the the, uh, authors of the New Testament understood what they were writing and understood the writings of others as scripture. And remember, scripture is a technical term, right? Scripture means a divinely inspired document. Second Peter is Peter's last letter, right? Peter knows he's going to die. He's coming to the end of his life. Second Peter is just like Second Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's last writing. 2 Peter is Peter's last writing. And in 2 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 2, look what Peter says here. Well, start with verse 1. 2 Peter 3, and verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And here's what he's going to remind them of. Okay, so he says, pay attention to this, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets. Okay, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, all the prophets in the Old Testament. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior. So in other words, all the words of Jesus. But then notice what he says. Spoken by your apostles. So there, Peter, and, and, and he's, speaking, he's speaking there about the other apostles, Paul and James and the others, right? He's putting their word on the level of Jesus' word and on the level of the prophet's word. So you see already that in Peter's mind he's understanding his writing and Paul's writing and James' writing and the rest of them as on a level of scripture with previous scripture like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and Habakkuk and the others in the Old Testament. So there we get already a clue of how Peter is understanding the writings of the apostles. But then we have it more explicit in verse 14 because here Peter is writing about the apostle Paul. And to Peter 3, and verse 14, Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And then Peter makes this very interesting comment about Paul's writings. In verse 16, he writes, As also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which you are in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort and then here's the critical remark, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now there you have it explicit, don't you? that what Paul wrote in his letters and Peter says there's a lot of things in there that are really difficult to understand. and he says there's people out there who are distorting it and twisting it, but they do that to all the scriptures the rest of the Scriptures. In other words, Paul's writings are lumped together by Peter into what he calls Scripture. And so we see that even Peter understands the writings, the letters of Paul to be Scripture. And so we see even the New Testament then already is beginning to be understood by the Church of God as Scripture, as inspired, infallible, and authoritative documents. Well, congregation, let me move quickly then to make some points of application on this. And the first thing I would like to do is just to point out how our confessions carry this on. And if you would take the Psalter hymnal, the blue hymnal there, and turn to our Belgic Confession in, on page 70 in the blue hymnal, you'll see how this, the confession is now articulating to us what the Word of God has taught us already from the practice of Jesus. So in Article 3 the Belgic Confession, we have this statement. We confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of man, but that men spoke from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what Jesus said, that David in the Psalms spoke in the Spirit. He was carried along by the Spirit of God. Then in Article 4, we have a list These are the books that are Scripture. The the Confession gives us a list, and actually in in Article 6, we have the difference given us between the canonical books and the apocryphal books. Again, the Confession making clear to us what actually is the limits of Scripture. And then in Article 5. In Article 5, we receive all these books, and these only as holy and canonical, for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them." So there it is, now the scripture is infallible. And because the scripture has no error, it lies at the foundation of all that takes place in this church. This is the soil, right? Out of which all the ministry of this church grows. The preaching, the sermons, okay? The different societies, the Bible studies, the youth group. It grows out of the soil of God's word. It is the regulation, the foundation, and the confirmation of our faith. And of course it says more there, but I'm going to move then to Article 7. Article 7, where we are taught, we believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. And This is teaching us the sufficiency of scripture that the scripture is all we need in order to understand what it is that we must do to be saved. Now notice it's not saying that the scripture is all you need to understand calculus or medicine, right? Or how best to run a country, right? Or nutrition, okay? The scripture may have some things to say about those things and it certainly doesn't, right? But in terms of what we must do to be saved, to be right with God, Right? The Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. So, this is then the basis of our confessional statements that the Word of God is inspired and it's the basis and regulates everything that takes place here in this church. It is written said Jesus and so should we so then the second point of application is our practice congregation we began the the sermon from Psalm 119 verse 72 and I wonder if the daily practice of our life reflects this truth the law of your mouth And again, understand the word law there very generally. The the instruction, the teaching of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. Is that in your life as well? If I was a fly on the wall in your home, would I say, boy, these people value the word of God? My wife and I were just talking the other day of how every time we went to visit Grandma and Grandpa Roffel in, in uh, Ontario, that's my wife's mother's parents, and they lived in Chatham, Ontario, and we would come through the door of that house, and there on the couch was an open Bible. Every time, every time we came there, there was that Bible laying there. You knew Grandma had been in the Word of God that morning. She always asked me the same question from the Bible. Such a fond memory. But she passed down to us a legacy of respect and value for the Word of God. I think I could say for her that she valued it like gold and silver. In congregation, that needs to be the practice of our church, that we value the Word of God. You know, we, we're often uh, criticized in reformed churches for having a higher value upon the writings of other men, or perhaps our confessional statements than we do the Bible. That should not be the case. That should not be the case. We should value our Bibles more than silver and gold, and that should be evident in our life. Just like we saw it in Jesus, in the debates and the discussions he had with the Pharisees, we saw what respect he had for the word of God. That needs to be for us too. That's why we started out, I started out my ministry here challenging every one of you. Maybe I should ask how we're doing with that. That we pray when we walk through those doors, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I pray that, congregation, in my study, every day when I come in. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Are you joining me in that? That God would speak to you every morning and every evening from this pulpit. Not Chris Inglesman, but God himself to speak to you from his word. And then just some very practical things for reading scripture for treating it like gold. And the first thing, and I know I've mentioned this before, I say it again, congregation, today, God gives us this 24 hours, or what's left of it after we, after, we, after we finish our sleeping, to devote to his worship. This is a day, congregation, when you can lay aside your normal labors, when you can lay aside even your normal entertainments and activities that we, that, that we enjoy doing the rest of the days of the week so that we can focus with our families on the Word of God. Now, I know you can't study Scripture all day long, and you need to prepare for the morning and evening services, right? And we have to refresh our minds, we have to rest, we have to take a break. I understand that. But this is a day. We often don't have the time during the week to give to the Word of God that we might like to do. Well, in that case, here is this 24 hours. Let us have a practice and a discipline of observing the Sabbath day and of keeping the Lord's day As a day dedicated to the things of the kingdom of God. Lay aside your business. Lay aside your work. Lay aside your hobbies. And make it a day where you read, study. Make it a day where you gather your children if you have families. Where you instruct them. Where you sing. Children love to sing. Sing with your children. Pray with your children. Observe the Sabbath day. Congregation, I want to encourage you to keep up a regular practice of family worship. In the Reformed churches, this used, to be, this used to be a standard practice in families that they would gather for a time of devotions in the evening or in the morning or whenever it may be. And Father would open the Word of God and He would read. They would pray over that Word and they would sing the Word of God. Just three things. Read, pray, and sing the Word of God. That's treating the Bible as silver and gold. That's making a statement even to your very youngest children who may not have a clue what you're saying. Boy, Dad really values the Word of God. Mom makes me sit here every morning and and reads for me the Word of God. There must be something important and valuable about this book the practice of regular family worship. I hope to, uh, I actually have a, booklets that uh, I brought with me from Reformation Heritage Books, a little booklet, a little 60-page booklet on family worship by Dr. Joel Beakey, uh back at Puritan Seminary. I hope to put them out on the book table uh, this evening. I meant to bring them this morning and we forgot, but we'll put them out on the table there. I would encourage you to take one of those booklets and to study that, especially if fathers as heads of family. Uh, This practice may have become, it may have dropped off in your family. Maybe it's time to revive it again. Maybe you've never started it. Many people grow up without ever having had family worship. They've never seen it before. Again, I I put that booklet out there as a resource for you to help you understand this this critical practice in families. Reading the Bible. Now, this would be obvious, right? Of course, if if the Bible is going to be, Gold and silver to us, we should read it. But how should we read it? Some of you, I know, are in the practice of reading through the Bible in a year. That's a wonderful practice. It's a wonderful practice. May I suggest to you another practice that you could consider that I think is actually even more effective than reading through the Bible in a year? In congregation, that is the repeated reading of sections of Scripture. Let me give you an example. Let's say you should take the book of 1 Peter. And every day for a month, you would read the book of First Peter. Every day for a month, you read the book of First Peter. You might read it in a translation, and then the next day in a different translation, and the next day in another translation. But whatever, you would read the book of First Peter, or the book of Titus, right? Or a given number of Psalms, right? Some defined section of scripture that you would read every day for a month or two months. You know what you would find then? is that the Word of God would begin to be uh, written on your memory. You'd begin to memorize Scripture without even trying. Aren't you often fascinated by people who can memorize Scripture? They have amazing passages of Scripture at, at their fingertips. They can just speak it. One way to do that is to this kind of repeated, sustained reading of the same passage of Scripture. And the next month, pick a different section. Maybe do it with your husband, with your wife, maybe with your older children to read the same passage of scripture over and over and over again. And then last congregation, applying. We know that our reading of scripture can never just be a reading of it. We need to make the application of it to us. And again, I give you the same method for application that I gave you before. Ask yourself faith, hope, and love. As you read the scriptures, faith, what is this scripture asking me to believe? What truth is being taught me here? Uh, Love. What is this scripture asking me to do? What action? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, what commandment is being given me here? How should my behavior change after reading this scripture from what it was before? Love. Do you love Jesus? Keep his commandments. Faith, love, and hope. What promise is being given me here that encourages me to look forward into the future? What promise is being given me here that now I should rely on? I should roll my soul upon this promise that God gives me in Scripture. Find the promises of God in Scripture and lean on them. Place all your weight upon them. Faith, hope, and love. Well, I hope that's helpful to you, congregation, as you think about treating the Bible as silver and gold. And my last point here. Yeah, I couldn't help but think of that story I shared with you last week of Caspar Olivianus, the author of our catechism, who when he came to the end of his life, was asked I think I'm getting this right. He, He was asked Olivianus, are you resting in the hope of the comfort of what you have taught to others? And he responded, right? Certissimus. Most Certain. And congregation, that's the word of God for us this this morning. The word of God is a rock. Why? Because God cannot lie. And congregation, there's a day coming when we're going to stand before the great white throne of God's judgment. And what are you going to say on that day? Why should God not throw you into hell forever and forever? We all have to admit it would be just. Well, congregation, you put your hand on the word of God and you say God's word back to him. Say, Lord, upon this word I am relying because this word speaks to me of a crucified king. And I lean on that word so that on our last, on our deathbed, with our last breath, we can say with all the people of God, certissimus. Because I'm standing on the rock of ages. It can never be shaken. All through the history of time, people have tried to tear down the word of God, to show that it has errors, to to rip out the rug from underneath its feet, as it were. And it's never succeeded. Christians are still living and dying in the hope of the word of God. Lord, this is the word that you have taught me to believe. I believe it, and I have no other hope I have nothing else that I can, nothing else that I can lay on the table. I have hope in this word only, and God will recognize His word, congregation. God will recognize His word, and He will say, "Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world." What a blessing! What a blessed way to stand before God's throne. There's no other way. And I want to read to you from, or I want to close the sermon from this, from what Joshua said. such beautiful words that Joshua gave near the end of his life. Joshua, he says, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Isn't that a beautiful way to come to the end of your life? I think Joshua is speaking to us this morning, congregation. He's saying not one of all the words, not one of these words, has ever failed. It will not fail you in life. It will not fail you in death. Certissimus. Amen. Almighty God and merciful Father, you've given us a rock to stand on that never can be shaken, that never can fail. I pray, O Lord, that not one of us would leave this building without the full certain confidence that we have both feet planted on this word, that this is the rock upon which we are standing. This is the truth of God. This truth never lies because it is your word. It is your breath. It is God breathed. Lord, help us to handle the word of God as Jesus did. To bow before it. All other books we think critically about. But this book, we just receive its truth. Help us to understand it correctly. Lord, send us your spirit to be our teacher, to be our guide, and to lead us into the truth. Lord, will you bless now the catechism and Sunday school instruction that takes place. We pray, O Lord, that our children too would find that this word is the best word. This is a word that they can rely on. Please remember us, Lord. Bless us this day. Make this day, Lord, in all of our families and all of our lives to be a day devoted to the word of God. And all these things we ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.